Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm a student at Drexel University College of Medicine, and I will be your host today. Welcome back, guys. Today's episode is really a continuation of our previous episode on diabetes mellitus. If you haven't listened to that yet, I would definitely recommend going back and doing so. It is a little on the longer side, but we covered very important aspects of the pathogenesis and presentation of types 1 and 2 diabetes, and we also went over case vignettes depicting very serious complications of diabetes. If you did listen to that episode, I'm sure you have a very good idea of how serious and deathly some of these complications can be. And so as you can imagine, it's very important to control diabetes as best as we can, okay? And so to do so, we use not only insulin, but also a variety of pharmacological treatments. So today, we're going to go over a lot of those drugs, talk about their mechanisms of action, their adverse effects, um, and then at the end, we'll touch a little on maintenance strategies that are used to screen for complications of diabetes as well as other medications that all diabetics should be on to prevent complications. I don't know if anyone shares this opinion, but when I was studying this topic, I definitely thought that pharmacology of diabetes was very difficult to grasp. I can't tell you how many times I tried to memorize the drugs, how many ways I tried to write them out. For me, it was just one of those things that never stuck. I think part of it had to do with the fact that I never really got the big picture of how these drugs were used. And I also think part of it had to do with the fact that the names of these drugs sounded so similar to each other, and I just couldn't keep them straight. So in this episode, I'm going to try and do my best to give you guys stupid mnemonics. You know, if they stick, keep them. If they don't, let them go. Um, But I'll do my best to help you guys remember these drug names. And I'm also going to do my best to give you an idea, at least, of when these drugs are used, if they're first line, second line, and so forth, okay? Of course, specialists will have a lot more knowledge about this than me as a medical student, but um, I do think it's a good idea for us as medical students to at least try and relate our knowledge to actual clinical practice. I will still try and stick with that Q&A format just because I think it's a great way to learn, but if you guys don't know the answers, if you're not remembering the drug names, don't panic, okay? The good thing about a podcast is that it's online, you can replay it, listen to it whenever you want. And an even better thing is you can plug in headphones and no one's going to know that you're even getting the answers wrong. So just remember that it's a learning process. We're trying to stay positive. And with that, let's get started. Number one on our list is treatment of type 1 diabetes. So what's the mainstay of treatment for type 1 DM? So remember, In type 1 diabetes, we have autoimmune destruction of the beta islet cells of the pancreas. They're not making insulin. What do we do if we can't make insulin? We replace the insulin. So it's not as simple as that. You have to know that there's various types of insulin preparations, okay? And it's important to know their pharmacokinetics. By that, I mean when they peak in terms of their effect, okay? And so they're divided based on how fast they act. So the fastest acting insulin that peaks at one hour is called rapid acting insulin. Do you guys know what the rapid acting insulins are? They are Lispro, 
aspart, and glulacine. I really hope I'm saying all these names right, but lispro, aspart, and glulacine, all right? The way I can remember this is no lag, L-A-G, lispro, aspart, glulacine, all right? These are the rapid-acting insulins, and they peak at about one hour. There's no lag. The next type of insulin is called short-acting, so it peaks at about two to three hours. Which type is this? This would be regular insulin, okay? So we can make um, regular human insulin, and it's considered short-acting. So I think of it as we want our insulin to peak right after meals, but it just is not as fast as some other synthetic versions. And so regular is about two to three hours, all right? We're fast, but we're not super fast. Then we have intermediate-acting insulin. That peaks later, about six to ten hours. Do you guys know which one that is? It's NPH. It stands for Neutral Protamine Hagdorn. I believe it's named after the person who created it. Um, but NPH is intermediate acting, so it peaks at about six to ten hours. If you need a way to remember this, um, maybe you can think NPH stands for no preference here. And so no preference means that it's an intermediate acting insulin. It's not fast, it's not slow, it's intermediate, no preference, okay? That's NPH. And then finally, we have our long-acting insulins. So these don't really have a peak, they just kind of stay in the system for a really long time, 16, 18, up to 24 hours. Do you guys know the names of these? They are Dedimir and Glargine, okay? Dedimir and Glargine. So glargine actually has an even longer half-life than dedimir, and so it's the slowest one. Now, I don't have a great mnemonic for them, but I just kind of remember them being said in my head in slow motion, like dedimir, glargine, kind of like when, when a movie is going in slow motion. It's stupid, but that's what helps me. So dedimir and glargine are the long-acting ones that can stay in your system for a really long time. And which one's the longer-acting of the two? That would be glargine. On the exam, they might show you a graph of the pharmacokinetics of these drugs. It's something that you can Google if you need a picture, um, but basically it's a graph and you have to identify the type of insulin based on when it peaks, okay? So they plot the level of insulin on the y-axis and time on the x-axis. So what you should know is the earliest ones to peak are going to be which types of insulin? The short-acting, no lag, right? So Lispro, Aspart, Glulacine, followed by which type of insulin? Peaks at about two hours, regular insulin. And then intermediate insulin, six to ten hours, NPH. And then the long-acting ones are what? Dedimir, followed by Glargine, all right? So Make sure you have a picture in mind of the pharmacokinetics of insulin because they might draw out colored lines and point to a line and say, which one is this? Okay. Now, what is the main adverse effect that we're worried about when we're giving somebody insulin? Hypoglycemia, right? So that can present with tremors, agitation, sweating. Um, we talked about it in the previous episode on diabetes mellitus more extensively. Um, but really when you're injecting somebody with insulin, hypoglycemia is a big side effect that we're worried about. So how is insulin used? 
I don't think I really understood this until I was in the hospital, but I think it's good to know kind of how it's used. So what we do is we calculate a person's total daily dosage of insulin that they should be getting based on their body weight. And then usually the rapid and short-acting insulins are given with mealtime. So you take them around mealtime, and so that should kind of mimic what happens in our body. When we ingest food, insulin is released in kind of pulses. But we also have a baseline level of insulin that we need to uh, kind of compensate for. And so the intermediate and long-acting insulins can be taken as basal insulins, okay? So without getting into too many details about the management, there's a lot of different uh, proposed methods, but one of the more common ones is called a basal bolus system. So you take a long-acting insulin at night, and that should last for about 24 hours just as a baseline level of insulin, and then we take a bolus insulin with meals. And we can also monitor insulin throughout the day and use what's called a sliding scale to make small adjustments in the mealtime doses of insulin. Um, and if it looks like the glucose isn't being adequately controlled, then we can even increase that basal dose of insulin to optimize our control of blood glucose. All right, let's move on now to the treatment of type 2 diabetes. So if somebody, let's say somebody comes in and they have a high HbA1c, um, which is in the diabetic range, what do we do for them? So initially, if their HbA1c is closer to target, it's okay to try just lifestyle changes, especially if the patient seems highly motivated, if their HbA1c is low enough. We can try encouraging weight loss via diet and exercise and see in a couple of months if that's helping. Unfortunately, a lot of patients are not going to be highly motivated to make lifestyle changes, and they might present with a really high HbA1c, say 7.5, 8%. Remember, 6.5 is kind of the cutoff that we use to diagnose diabetes mellitus. And so in these patients, you're often going to need medical management, and we, it's ideal if we can initiate medical management along with lifestyle changes. So what's the initial medical therapy we usually use for diabetes, for type 2 diabetes? Metformin, right? Metformin is preferred. It's an oral agent. And do you guys know what drug class metformin falls under? It falls under a drug class called the biguanides. So if you have a hard time remembering that, remember that metformin is the big one for diabetes mellitus. And so biguanide is the drug class. What's the mechanism by which metformin works. So metformin inhibits that mitochondrial glycerophosphate dehydrogenase enzyme. All right, the mitochondrial glycerophosphate dehydrogenase. That results in an inhibition of hepatic gluconeogenesis, and it also increases glycolysis. All right, so we're breaking down sugar, and we're stopping the liver from making more glucose. What are the most common adverse effects of metformin? Most commonly, we're going to see diarrhea, dyspepsia, basically GI distress. What's the most feared complication of metformin, though? The really serious one. It's lactic acidosis, okay? And it happens when a lot of the drug accumulates. So we really have to be careful in a specific type of patient. What is that? Patients with renal failure, okay, 
any patient with renal insufficiency is going to end up having excess accumulation of metformin because metformin is eliminated renally. If metformin accumulates, then they're going to get lactic acidosis. So if you need a way to tie that all together, think of metformin as formin lactic acid in the kidney. All right? Lactic acid is formin in the kidney with metformin. A few other side effects of metformin include B12 deficiency. So metformin is actually recommended to be taken with B12 as well as calcium supplements. And what's a good side effect of metformin, something that's usually ideal for diabetic patients? Weight loss. It promotes weight loss. You'll see as we go through this episode that a lot of drugs used to manage type 2 diabetes cause weight changes, some of them weight loss, some of them weight gain. Metformin, fortunately, promotes weight loss, and so it's really good. Another great, not side effect, but lack of side effect of metformin is that it does not cause hypoglycemia, okay? So with insulin, you're worried about blood sugar levels dropping. With metformin, we have no such fear. And so it's a great drug to start with, okay? It's kind of ideal. So big picture-wise, at the medical student level, I think it's good to know that metformin is a great starting point for treating prediabetes or type 2 diabetes that we feel needs medical management. And then in addition to that, there are several other classes of drugs that can be used either in addition to metformin or as a substitute for metformin if we're not achieving adequate glucose control. Okay, for these drugs, it's really important to know their mechanism, their adverse effects, and also, of course, be able to recognize their names, which I think is really tough. Um, So we'll work on that through this episode. Um, But it's a good idea to be familiar with these drugs because you're going to get asked about them and you want to know what types of patients they would be contraindicated in as well. The first class of drugs we're going to talk about in this category is a class of drugs that promotes glucose-dependent insulin release, all right? It can also promote weight loss, and as a side effect, it can actually cause pancreatitis. Do you know what drug I'm talking about? So these are the GLP-1 analogs, all right? Their names, anybody know? They are things like exenatide, liraglutide. They end in that tide ending, okay? So GLP-1 stands for glucagon-like peptide 1, okay? And it's one of those molecules that's called an incretin. Remember how oral glucose loads are better at promoting insulin release than IV glucose? You learned that in physiology? It's because of these molecules called incretin. They are released in the GI tract in response to glucose, and they actually promote increased insulin release. So that's why our bodies respond better to oral glucose loads than IV glucose loads when it comes to secreting insulin. So this GLP-1 agonist helps to promote insulin release the same way that GLP does, all right? In addition to that, it also promotes decreased gastric emptying, and it decreases release of glucagon, it increases satiety, and so it really helps out the actions of insulin, okay? So remember that exenatide and liraglutide act as GLP-1 analogs to promote insulin release. If you need a mnemonic to remember this, think of insulin getting released in waves, all right? And we get more waves when the tide is high, okay? So exenatide, liraglutide, these are GLP-1 analogs that 
support more insulin or more waves, all right, when the tide is high. And an important adverse effect of these drugs, it's pancreatitis, so think pancreatitis, T-I-D-E, and hopefully that'll help you tie all of that together, okay? So the GLP-1 analogs, exenatide, liraglutide, they help promote insulin release, and their adverse effect can be pancreatitis. What was their effect on weight again? They can cause weight loss. This next class of drugs has similar end outcomes as the GLP-1 analogs, but they have a different mechanism. So they're not GLP-1 analogs, but they increase endogenous levels of GLP-1 by inhibiting the enzyme that degrades them. There's an enzyme called DPP-4, or dipeptidyl peptidase 4, which is responsible for degrading GLP-1. If we inhibit DPP-4, then we get increased endogenous GLP-1 levels. So do you guys know what class of drugs this is or what their names are? The class of drugs is in the mechanism. So these are the DPP-4 inhibitors. And their names are linagliptin, saxagliptin, citagliptin. They all end with the glyptin suffix. What are the adverse effects of the glyptins? So they can cause infections, either urinary or respiratory tract infections, all right? DPP-4 is not a very specific enzyme, and so it can have cross-reactivity with other similar enzymes that actually modulate the immune function. And so that's why we get the increased urinary or respiratory tract infections. Do you know how the DPP-4 inhibitors affect weight? They're actually weight neutral, so we don't get an increase or a decrease in weight. Now, my way to remember this is definitely a bit of a stretch, but if it works, it works. So think of Lipton T. Remember, that matches that glyptin ending of these drugs, linagliptin, saxagliptin, citagliptin. So you drink Lipton T when you're sick. So these respiratory tract infections or urinary tract infections, let's say, all right? Um, and so think of, the, think of that Lipton T to help remember the side effects. And then you can remember that glyptin has the letters GLP in it, and so it's going to increase the GLP-1 levels. How does it do that? By inhibiting that enzyme that degrades them, which is DPP-4. I've seen this next class of drugs show up a lot on tests. I think it's a newer drug class, relatively. This one blocks reabsorption of glucose in the proximal convoluted tubule of the kidney. Okay, so you're actually peeing out more of the glucose. Do you know what drug class this is? These are the SGLT2 inhibitors. So SGLT stands for sodium glucose cotransporter 2, and it's located in the PCT of the kidney, the proximal tubule. And so we just inhibit that transporter so we stop reabsorbing the glucose. What are the names of these? They are canagliflozin, dapagliflozin, empagliflozin. They all end in flozin, all right? Do you know the adverse effects? So all of the adverse effects result from the fact that we have a lot of glucose in the urine, okay? If we're just storing a bunch of sugar in our bladder, then it's kind of the perfect place for things to grow. So we have increased UTIs, increased vaginal yeast infections. It can also interfere with electrolyte transport, and so hyperkalemia is a side effect, increased K. And then, of course, they can cause dehydration because glucose stays in the tubules, it's drawing in water as well, and so you're peeing more than you normally would. 
what is their effect on weight? Do you know? Well, you can imagine you're losing a whole bunch of sugar, so you're going to lose weight. So these SGLT2 inhibitors, the flozins, cause weight loss. Now, how do you remember that these drugs are called flozins? So their mechanism is preventing reabsorption of glucose in the kidney. So glucose just flows in the kidney, hence flozins. There's two classes of drugs that I want to talk about in conjunction because they have very similar mechanisms. The, the only difference is that they have two different binding sites. Can you think back to biochemistry? Remember how insulin is released from the beta cells of the pancreas? Glucose enters the beta cells, and that triggers depolarization. So there's actually a calcium influx that triggers the release of insulin. These drugs, both of these classes, they block potassium channels to force depolarization of that cell and cause calcium influx and trigger insulin release. Do you know the names of these classes of drugs? They are the sulfonylureas and the meglitinides. They both block potassium channels in the beta cells of the pancreas. They just bind different sites. And blocking that potassium causes calcium influx and it triggers insulin release. What are adverse effects of the sulfonylureas and the meglitinides? So both of these drugs undergo renal metabolism, so you have to watch out for them in renal failure. And they can both actually cause hypoglycemia because they're triggering insulin release. Do you know what effect these drugs have on body weight? So both of these can actually cause weight gain, all right? These are our first drugs, the sulfonylureas and meglitinides that we've talked about so far that can cause weight gain. One thing to note about the sulfonylureas is that there's two generations of them. So the first generation has more complicated names, I think. They are chlorpropamide, tolbutamide, and do you know the big side effect of the first generation sulfonylureas? They can cause disulfiram-like effects, okay? So remember, disulfiram is the drug that inhibits acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, and it causes people to get that increased hangover sensation whenever they drink alcohol. And so that's the side effect that's associated with the first-generation sulfonylureas, chlorpropamide and tolbutamide. What about the second-generation ones, glimepiride, glipizide, gliburide? These ones don't cause the disulfiram-like effects. For these ones, just think hypoglycemia. The meglitinides, fortunately, there's no generations for these. Their names are nataglinide, repaglinide, olins, and glinide. And remember, these can also cause hypoglycemia. So these sulfonylureas, meglitinides, they're a little tricky. Um, I think of them as being older drugs, and so they have kind of worse side effect profiles. They cause weight gain, we're worried about hypoglycemia with them. The first generation sulfonylureas are the worst. They can cause those disulfiram-like effects with alcohol. And so they just don't have a great side effect profile. Unfortunately, I do not have a great way to remember their names. Um, glimepiride, glipizide, gliburide, these all sound very similar to each other. And they're the second generation sulfonylureas. So you'll see those names being used more commonly. And then the meglitinides, they all end in that glinide ending, so nataglinide, repaglinide, and so on. I know we've covered a lot already, but we're nearing the end, I promise. Just a few more classes of drugs, okay? So this next one regulates a nuclear transcriptor, PPAR gamma. That stands for Peroxisome Proliferator Activated Receptor. 
So PPAR gamma is a nuclear transcriptor that increases insulin sensitivity. It also increases adiponectin. Remember adiponectin? That's a hormone released by fat cells that promotes fatty acid oxidation, and it also inhibits hepatic gluconeogenesis. So this nuclear transcriptor, PPAR gamma, is associated with a lot of great responses. Um, do you guys know what these drugs are called? So these are the glitazones, okay? Pioglitazone, rosiglitazone, they all end with that glitazone suffix. So if it helps you to remember, I don't know if it does, but the PPAR gamma receptor is also known as the glitazone receptor. And so that's why the drugs are named glitazones. What are side effects of this drug? The major side effect to worry about with the glitazones is heart failure. So other side effects are related to that. You can get a lot of peripheral edema, and you can imagine that would contribute to weight gain as well. So heart failure, edema, weight gain, and also it increases your risk of fractures. So to tie this all together, think PPAR gamma, PPAR gramma, okay? So think of a grandma with heart failure, increased fracture risk, and to kind of add the cherry on top, if you think of a grandma wearing glitter, you'll also remember that glitazone suffix that's associated with these drugs. All right. Now, if you listen to the last episode, do you remember what protein was thought to cause amyloidosis in type 2 diabetes mellitus? Amylin. Okay. Amylin is secreted along with insulin by the beta cells of the pancreas. So... Another type of drug that we can use are amylin analogs. These complement insulin, decrease glucose release. They also decrease gastric emptying and increase satiety. Sound familiar? Just like those GLP-1s. Okay, so do you guys know the names of some amylin analogs? Pramlintide is the only one I know. So think pramlintide. It sounds just like amylin, Okay. Adverse effects of pramlintide, similar to insulin, it can cause hypoglycemia and it can also cause nausea. And finally, we made it to our last drug that I want to ask you about for diabetes mellitus. Now, we talked earlier about preventing glucose absorption in the kidney, right, with the flozins. What if we prevent absorption of glucose in the GI tract, so right from the diet? We can actually do that by inhibiting these enzymes called alpha-glucosidases, which are in the GI system and they break down carbohydrates. So alpha-glucosidase inhibitors would then prevent a breakdown of carbohydrates in the GI tract and prevent absorption of glucose. What are these drugs called? Their names are acarbose and miglitol. So adverse effects of these drugs... Well, you can imagine if all the sugar just stays in the bowel, you'll get some GI upset, all right? So it can act as an osmotic agent, cause osmotic diarrhea, um, and so acarbose and miglitol would be associated with GI upset. Their names, I think they're pretty easy to remember. So acarbose, think no carbs. We're not allowing our gut to absorb the carbs. For miglitol, think of mitigating that postprandial hyperglycemia. Again, because we're not absorbing the glucose. The names aren't similar to each other, but you can associate them with the mechanism. So acarbose and miglitol. Whew, if you're still listening, you deserve a pat on the back because we just went over a ton of drugs. Believe me, I know how hard it is to keep this straight. 
Bear with me here. I just want to go through a rapid fire review to see if you guys retained anything. Okay. So let's start by reviewing insulin. What was rapid acting insulin that peaks at one hour? Lispro, aspart, glulacine. Remember, no lag. When does regular insulin peak? About two to three hours. And what is the insulin with the longest half-life? That's glargine. Remember, Dedimir has a very long half-life as well, but the longest one is glargine. Now let's go through the drugs really quickly. So usually, what did we say was the first-line therapy for type 2 diabetes mellitus, sometimes even pre-diabetes? Metformin. And why do we want to avoid it in renal failure? We don't want to get lactic acidosis. We don't want any lactic acid forming in the kidney. Now, which class of drugs did we talk about that can cause pancreatitis? These were the GLP-1 analogs, exenatide, liraglutide. Remember, liraglutide, pancreatitis, okay? Which drugs did we talk about that increase GLP-1, but they do so by inhibiting DPP-4? These were the gliptins, linagliptin, citagliptin. What was their big side effect? Remember, we thought of drinking Lipton tea when sick, and so these can cause sickness, respiratory, and urinary infections. Which drugs did we talk about that can cause disulfiram-like effects? These were the first-generation sulfonylureas, chlorpropamide and tolbutamide. The other sulfonylureas, as well as the meglitinides, we group them together, remember, because they inhibit that potassium channel to promote insulin release. What were their side effects? That's right, hypoglycemia and weight gain. Now, what other drug did we say can cause weight gain? It can also cause edema, heart failure, increased risk of fractures. Yeah, PPAR grandma, remember, the glitazone, so pioglitazone, rosiglitazone. These are the drugs that are associated with heart failure. And then finally, which drugs prevent alpha-glucosidase from breaking down carbohydrates in the GI tract so that we can't absorb sugar? The alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, acarbos and miglitol. Good job, guys. I was impressed if you survived the episode thus far. If you survived that rapid-fire review, then you guys are doing awesome. Remember, these type 2 diabetes drugs are really hard to learn. I know this, okay? Repetition is key. Go back and listen again if it helps you. You can write the drugs down in several different ways, make tables, whatever helps. Silly mnemonics also always help me remember. I'm sorry if mine weren't very good. If you guys can think of better mnemonics, you can post them in the comments under this episode, and that would be awesome because I'm sure others would be interested in hearing some better mnemonics as well. I'll wrap up now by talking about a few other considerations for treating diabetic patients. So what drug do we want to give them for cardiovascular protection? We definitely want diabetics to be on a statin medication. It's not tested at the step one level, but there's a score that we use called the atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk score. And that uses their cholesterol values, their age, comorbid conditions, ethnicity, and it helps determine the intensity of the statin that we want to put them on. But all diabetics should be on a statin medication. 
how do we achieve blood pressure control in diabetics? Because a lot of times they have comorbid hypertension. So we use ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. These are grouped kind of as one class, but all diabetics, if they have high blood pressure, should be on an ACE or an ARB. When else would you consider giving an ACE or an ARB besides hypertension? If they have signs of kidney damage, and how do we look for that in diabetics? We look at the microalbuminuria, okay? Remember, we measure the urine albumin to creatinine ratio in micrograms of albumin to milligrams of creatinine. And if that ratio is between 30 to 300, then that signifies microalbuminuria, which is not detectable on dipstick, but still indicative of end-organ kidney damage. And so they should be on an ACE or an ARB to have protection for their kidney. Now, these aren't necessarily drugs, but just kind of maintenance things that we should be thinking about for diabetic patients at the primary care level. So one thing that they should have is a yearly eye exam to look for diabetic retinopathy. If they do get vascular proliferation, what treatment would we use for them? Remember, we can use anti-VEGF injections. These are antibodies against the vascular endothelial growth factor, which under normal conditions would promote vascular proliferation. Another quick screening test that diabetics should be getting in every visit is a monofilament exam to look for neuropathy. Okay, so you basically take a very thin filament and ask diabetic patients if they can feel it on their feet. Why do we do that? Because neuropathy can lead to ulcers, gangrene, charco joints, very bad things, okay? If we see that somebody doesn't have sensation in their feet, then we want to make sure that they're regularly looking at their feet to check for these things so that they don't have to get an amputation further down the road. Some patients will have pain from their neuropathy. It all depends on which types of nerve fibers are affected. So if a patient has painful neuropathy, how can we treat them? We can often use gabapentin or tricyclic antidepressants. Do you guys remember the mechanism of gabapentin? I only ask because it's misleading, okay? It has nothing to do with GABA. It actually inhibits L-type voltage-dependent calcium channels at excitatory synapses, um, and that's how it works. It does not have anything to do with GABA. I just like to point that out because it's not very logical. All right, then. That brings us to an end on our discussion of diabetic pharmacology. I don't blame you if you guys feel overdosed on these diabetes drugs. They're very hard to remember, and I think they just need a lot of practice and repetition. I'm hoping that this review gave you a good idea of the general big picture treatment scheme for diabetes. And with all those mini drug classes within the type 2 diabetes treatments, you just need to be familiar with the mechanisms of the drugs. I've tried to highlight the most poignant side effects that you're going to be tested on. I think the names can get really tricky and everything can start to sound similar. So you need practice with these drugs and I think mnemonics are the best way to help remember. Again, if you think of a great mnemonic, please post it in the comments under this episode and I'm sure others would be interested to hear as well. I'll leave you alone now so you guys can get on studying or take a break or whatever you want to do. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything I didn't talk about, um, please visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and you can post those under the comments for this episode. 
If this review was helpful and other episodes have been great for you, please subscribe. I know that studying, especially with pharmacology, can be very frustrating. So if you ever have an SOS moment, use what you learned on Spoonful of Sugar to help the medicine go down.